This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why do a debate on Walmart? Why put a store in the same league as other topics we've debated like Obamacare and immigration and Russia and Syria and Trump and religion? Because Walmart is much more than a store. It is America's biggest company in terms of revenue. It is the nation's biggest employer outside of the federal government. Walmart has reconfigured communities, epitomized globalism, and been recognized as a force either that creates work or destroys work. Why debate Walmart? Because there is so much to argue about. So let's do it. Yes or no to this statement. Long live Walmart. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. Our debate will go in three rounds. And then our audience here in New York will vote to choose the winner. And only one side wins. Let's meet first the team arguing for the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Tierney. Hi, John. Um, you are a contributing editor to uh, City Journal. You're a contributing columnist at the New York Times. Um, a known contrarian, writing articles that have titles such as Recycling is Garbage. Um, and somewhat closer to tonight's topic, you wrote a piece called Shopping for a Nobel. Uh, meaning what? Well, I argued that the Nobel Peace Prize should be awarded to Walmart. Um, so far, the Nobel Committee has not accepted my advice, but I'm hoping that tonight's debate will change their mind. All right. <laughs> we will see. Can you tell us who your partner is, John? Uh, it's another person who deserves a Nobel Prize, the great economist, Rich Vedder. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Vedder. <laughs> Hi, Richard. Um, you're a professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University, now uh, director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. You wrote a book about Walmart, um, The Walmart Revolution, How Big Box Stores Benefit Consumers. But Walmart did not uh, authorize this book or bless this book. Um, but you did run into a Walmart executive at one point and sort of suggested the idea that maybe they should carry your book in their stores? Yeah. <laughs> How'd that go? They looked at me and very politely said, uh, no, uh, I don't think it'll sell well. Sam Walton won't do as good as Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. And now time to meet the team arguing against the motion. Long live Walmart. Please welcome first Nelson Lichtenstein. Uh, Nelson, you're a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where you run the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. You also wrote a book about Walmart, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business. Um, not entirely a flattering book, but we'll ask the same question. Do they carry your book? They do indeed. And uh, I just looked it up <laughs> on the Walmart webpage. You can buy it for three ninety nine. That's heavily discounted. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, strange things happen in world capitalism. And, uh, and, he, and you've just seen it right here. All right. And it sounds like a bargain. <laughs> can you tell us who your partner Amy is? Amy Traub. Ladies and gentlemen, Amy Traub. Hi, Amy. Um, you are Associate Director of Policy and Research at Demos, where a lot of your research focuses on job quality and employment issues and building up the middle class. You have said that Walmart has a unique opportunity to th turn things around on all three of those fronts. But are there any other big retailers out there that you think are getting things right? Well, John, there's, there's nobody who's perfect out there, but you don't have to be perfect to be doing better than Walmart when it comes to job quality. So Costco, for example, is a big retailer that does it better than Walmart. They're better on wages, and they're better, better in terms of working conditions. I bet they're loving hearing that at Costco tonight. Oh, they may well <laughs> All right. be. Thanks, Amy, and thank you to the team arguing against the motion, which is long live Walmart. So let's get started. On to round one. Round one will be opening statements from each debater in turn. And here speaking first for the motion, John Tierney, a contributing editor to City Journal and contributing science columnist to the New York Times. 
In my column in the New York Times, I challenged readers to name any other organization that has done as much as Walmart to help the world's poor. I still haven't heard a plausible candidate. I mean, no one comes close to Walmart in combating poverty because it does, it does two things. First, it saves customers a ton of money. It's been estimated that it saves a typical American family about $2,500 a year. Now, to put that figure in perspective, that's about what a, a family on food stamps gets from the federal government. Now, second... Walmart is the chief pipeline for redistributing wealth from rich countries to poor countries. If you're a subsistence farmer living on a dollar a day in Africa or Asia or Latin America, the surest way out of poverty is to take a job in a factory selling products to Western customers. You can multiply quickly your income by four, five, six times. For the first time in your life, you can afford electricity and running water. Now, since 1990, when Walmart became the largest retailer in America, the global rate of poverty has been cut by two-thirds. Now, that's one of the greatest miracles in human history, and Walmart played a leading role. And so the obvious question is, why isn't it more popular? You know, why do you hear so many terrible things about Walmart? Well, one reason is, is snobbery. A lot of people find Walmart tacky. But the main reason is that Walmart has challenged some very vocal special interests. Newspapers don't like Walmart because it spends very little money on newspaper advertising. Local merchants don't like it because they don't want to match its prices. And most important, Walmart workers don't give part of their paychecks to a union. Union leaders want to keep those dues coming, and so do the politicians who get a share of those dues in the form of campaign contributions from unions. Some critics complain that Walmart sells too many foreign products. And as we saw during the presidential campaign, it's really easy to work up popular anger against foreign workers. But from a moral standpoint, if you're concerned about global income inequality, you shouldn't feel guilty shopping at Walmart. There's nothing wrong with sending your money to those workers. And if you're concerned about social justice here in America, consider what Walmart's been doing. Progressives used to worry about workers in small company towns whose paychecks disappeared every week because they were getting gouged at the company store. They used to worry about inner-city families that had no access to stores selling healthy food at low prices. So Walmart comes along to solve those problems, and what's the reaction? Stop them before they discount again. Imagine if Republicans in Washington proposed slashing food stamp benefits to poor New Yorkers. They'd be outraged at their cruelty. But that's what Mayor de Blasio and the city council have done by refusing to let Walmart operate here. They're effectively taking money out of the pockets of the poorest families in New York. If you care about those families, if you care about all the people across America who have been helped by Walmart, all the people around the world, I hope you'll join us in supporting the, revolu uh, the resolution. <laughs> Long, and it is a revolution. Long live Walmart. <laughs> Thank you, John Tierney. And that's the motion, Long Live Walmart. And our next debater will be speaking against the motion. Please welcome Amy Traub, Associate Director of Policy and Research at Demos. Ladies and gentlemen, Amy Traub. I'm a researcher, and I've worked on a lot of studies over the years on Walmart and its business model. But I was talking recently with someone who knows Walmart really well. Her name is Emeraid, and she's been working at a Walmart in rural Pennsylvania for about six years. Emeraid has a lot of frustrations on the job, but she likes working with customers, and she's good at it. She works as a cashier, mans the customer service desk, works in autos, sporting goods, self-checkout, and hardware. And after six years, Emirate is paid $10.20 an hour, pretty much the same as workers who have been at Walmart for six months. Recently, she got a 40-cent raise, and at the same time, management started cutting back her hours, so she was earning even less, making it difficult to keep up with her car payments. A million Walmart workers are in Emirates' position. 
The company pays its workers poverty wages. It offers few benefits, and it manipulates workers' hours and understaffs its stores. That low-wage business model serves one purpose. It's so the company can maximize profits that go to some of the wealthiest people on the planet. Consider wages. Let's take Walmart at their word that they now pay their full-time workers an average of $13.69 an hour. A full-time worker at Walmart only gets 34 hours a week, so that's just over $24,000 a year. That's still below the poverty line for a family of four, and half of Walmart workers only work part-time. Like Emirate, many of those part-timers would like full-time employment, but Walmart refuses that. Clearly, it's these 1.5 million U.S. workers at Walmart who feel the immediate effects of the low-wage business model. But it also takes a toll on all of us as taxpayers. Many Walmart workers sign up for Medicaid so they can go to the doctor. At the end of working a long shift, many Walmart workers still have to use food stamps so their kids don't go to bed hungry. A congressional report from 2013 found that a single 300-employee Walmart supercenter may cost taxpayers nearly $1.75 million every year. We're all, all of us in this room, underwriting Walmart's profits. And those profits widen the gap between the wealthiest few in our country and everyone else, pulling our economy further out of balance. I want to take a step back now and look at the other half of the inequality equation. Where do Walmart's profits go? Walmart netted $15 billion last year. Sam Walton's heirs still own about half of Walmart. These six billionaires are some of the wealthiest people in the world. On the other hand, the workers like Emirate who help generate that wealth worry about holding on to the car that gets them to work every day. It doesn't have to be this way. Our economy thrives when people have money in their pockets to cover the basics to keep the lights on and to spend their paychecks on groceries and new shoes for the kids. That money goes into our local economies to lift up and strengthen the entire community. The question we're grappling with tonight is long live Walmart, but Walmart's business model isn't worthy of a long life. It's a prime example of the inequality that keeps working people living on the edge of poverty a business model that has funneled profits to the ultra-wealthy, and a model that undercuts the fundamental promise of our country that hard work should pay off. If you agree that there's a better, more equitable way to operate a business, you should vote no against the proposition. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm your host, John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, Long Live Walmart. You have heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third here to debate for the motion. Richard Vedder, he is Distinguished Professor of Economics Emeritus at Ohio University and author of The Walmart Revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Vedder. There are a million and a half workers at Walmart. There are more than 100 million people who buy the products of Walmart within the United States, much less those in the rest of the world, much less the ones uh, that are producing uh, goods for Walmart overseas. What can we say about them? Well, let's take Jason Furman. He's chair, he was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. And I quote, a range of studies has found that Walmart prices, Walmart's prices are 8 to 39 percent below the prices of its competitors. And then he went on, and I quote again, 
the collateral damages from efforts to get Walmart to raise wages and benefits is way too enormous and damaging to working people and the economy for me to sit by idly and sing kumbaya in the interest of progressive harmony. Now, not only has Walmart lifted uh, many Americans out of poverty by providing goods at lower prices, it has done so by paying billions of dollars, at least $6 billion every year, in federal income taxes and more billions in sales and property taxes. Au contraire uh, to Amy, I would say, Walmart is runs a private anti-poverty program that actually benefits taxpayers. Now, why can't Walmart pay... Uh, the 800,000 or so of the lowest paid workers say another $5 an hour, which at one point Amy calculated, and I think correctly, would cost only $6 billion. This is a $450 billion company after all. But we're living a little bit in the past today, I must say. Walmart's profits are no longer 15 or 16 billion. Their new statement came out, show them around 13 and a half billion. They have fallen 20% in the last four years. Amazon stock has risen 250%. Walmart stock is lower than it was four years ago. Just as Walton uh, revolutionized retail trade a couple generations ago, so Amazon is doing that today. Walmart is in a fight for survival investing heavily in Internet sales expansion. To forego that investment to finance above-market wages would eventually put the company out of business, uh, hurting not only thousands of stockholders, but millions of low- and middle-income customers who benefit from Walmart's low prices. Many of these people don't have computer access. They can't afford to start shopping on Amazon. Uh, or with some of the critics of Walmarts at their favorite stores like Whole Foods. Uh, so that's where we stand, folks. Walmart's a good company. Costco is in a different world. Don't We can't even talk about Costco. They're the biggest seller of champagne in America. The people at Walmart don't buy champagne. <laughs> Thank you, Richard Vedder. The motion, long live Walmart. And here's our final debater in the opening round. He will be speaking against the motion, Nelson Lichtenstein. He is a professor and director of the Center for the Study of Work at UC Santa Barbara and author of The Retail Revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, Nelson Lichtenstein. Well, as Amy said, the We have to be against a proposition which says long live Walmart in its current state. Certainly, we aren't asking for the physical destruction of the company, but we want it to change its business model, change the way it does its business. Because Walmart today offloads so many social costs, costs that should be part of the the company itself onto its workers, its uh, suppliers, and U.S. taxpayers. Walmart is not unique. Forty years ago, it was a revolutionary force in retail. But today, it's a mature company. It's It's growing, but not particularly fast. But it actually is setting the standards for the rest, for all of retail. There are more retail workers in the United States today than there are factory workers. In West Virginia, there are more Walmart workers than there are coal miners. So this is a very important question, not just for Walmart, but for the rest of the country. And Walmart admits that. Walmart says that. In in an advertisement of just a little while ago, it says, Walmart saves the average family about $3,100 a year, no, no matter where they shop. What they were saying there is that all of our innovations in logistics, uh, in suppliers, in uh, uh, the, our wage structure, such as it is, have been adopted by our competitors. I want to make just two points here. One is this. Uh, those social costs, these social costs fall upon people 
that that are that are supplying uh, the goods that Walmart sells, and the most horrific example of this took place in Bangladesh four years ago when one thousand one hundred and thirty eight people were killed in a factory that collapsed that was producing for Walmart as well as other Western uh, suppliers. Now, why did that building collapse? Well, the approximate reason was it was poorly engineered, but the ultimate reason, and this has been agreed to by by all those who have studied it, was that the firms that were in this building supplying Western retailers and European as well were under a tremendous squeeze. They were being squeezed uh, uh, week after week, year after year to reduce prices, uh, uh, get stuff out on time, uh, you know, and meet the standards of these companies. Now, yes, of course, people were being employed there, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the squeeze meant that that it's a kind of a pathology of the supply chain. One of the problems is Walmart doesn't even know what some of those suppliers are because it doesn't care. Out of sight, out of mind. Just get the goods to us on time and under budget. Yes, there has been tremendous poverty reduction, and here I agree with you, uh, by the industrialization of the of, of East Asia. But we never uh, measure uh, our, pro- our progress in terms of how far we are above abject poverty. There are 100,000 uh, demonstrations and strikes in China every year. And there was a general strike in, in, in Bangladesh after the collapse of this building. These workers, yes, they, they, they had jobs, but is it for us to say you should be happy? Now, as a result of that collapse in DACA, a, a, the ILO and, other, and others set up a, a system of legal accountability, and about 200 firms signed on to that, mainly European. Walmart, most notably, did not. And I think it didn't because it did not want to take responsibility for what it was doing in East Asia. Thank Thank you, you. Nelson Lichtenstein. Thank you. Your time is up. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is long live Walmart. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly as they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in New York City. The motion is long live Walmart. We have heard John Tierney and Richard Vetter argue that Walmart actually represents a series of economic and social goods, that it, it functions effectively as a major anti-poverty program, primarily by driving down prices for ordinary people. They talk about the animosity towards uh, Walmart coming basically from snobbery combined with special interests such as union groups. The team arguing against the motion, uh, Amy Traub and Nelson Lichtenstein, um, they take the point that Walmart is uh, maybe a star retailer, but it's sort of the death star, Um, that it's a company that is uh, paying poverty wages, uh, manipulates hours. Walmart, they say, could pay better. And as evidence, they say that other retailers do. And they also talk about other issues like abusive conditions for workers in foreign factories supplying Walmart. So we are just curious. Have you shopped at Walmart in the past year? Yes. <laughs> I was at a Sam's Club. John, my underwear is from Walmart that I'm wearing tonight. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some questions from me now to the panelists. I want to put to the team arguing against the motion, your opponents making the argument, very, very bold statement, that um, Walmart actually is running an anti-poverty program. What's your response to that? Let's start with you, Amy. Yeah, look, working people today in America are under pressure on two sides. On the one side, we have stagnant wages. Um, And Walmart really has a lot to do with that, with tremendous influence throughout the service sector and pushing wages down. On the other hand, we have, as Nelson mentioned, skyrocketing costs for things you can't buy at Walmart. The cost of child care is just out of control. Can't buy that at Walmart. Health care, cost of trying to send a kid to college. Uh, These are things you can't buy at Walmart, and I would argue that those stagnant wages and those other costs out there, that cost of housing as well, um, that makes a bigger difference for working families in this country, and Walmart is pushing people into poverty. All right, John Tierney, response. You're right that that other sectors of the economy have gotten more expensive. And the problem is that we don't have people like Sam Walton there. I mean, Nelson has argued before, for instance, that uh, uh, that the major parts now are housing and education. 
And the problem there is that those are the most heavily regulated and unionized parts of the economy. There hasn't been efficiency there. They've just kept going up and up. And thank God that Walmart has actually been pushing its prices down so people can afford these other things. And the idea that we need more regulation, more unionization in Walmart, so it gets as expensive as colleges do and and as expensive as as, uh, our public education costs. I mean, I think Walmart has been saving people against those problems. Nelson, would like to respond? Uh, actually, in fact, of course, Walmart has uh, benefited enormously from various kinds of governmental services. For example, interstate highway system. That argument you're making that uh, we should Walmartize everything, it's kind of both utopian, even from your point of view, and it doesn't reflect the next but 30, Walmart's 40 years. But customers pay for those highways with taxes. I mean, it's not as if it's a gift from, um, you know, the, their customers. Not when they were built. They didn't, Walmart didn't exist when they were built. Would you like the Walmartization of the entire economy? I think Walmart has been a positive effect on the economy. There are some things that Walmart can't do. I don't know that Walmart uh, is terribly good at teaching neuroscience uh, in their stores. But Walmart, you know, has been terribly uh, uh, maligned, I think, unfairly by uh, a concerted campaign led by the unions. Uh, they pay uh, their cashier, and, and Amy mentioned these numbers, roughly $10.17 is the sort of mid-range estimate from bottom to top. Uh, uh, that's what Home Depot pays. It's more than Kroger, which, by the way, is a unionized store But when, when Amy says those are poverty wages, what is your response? Some people, not everyone is going to be in the middle class. So, uh, sure, are there some people in poverty because of low wages? Yes. Are, will there always be? Yes. Okay, so, so, Amy, your opponent is, in a way, saying welcome to the real world. Well, listen, um, I think we've seen that there are a lot of different ways to run a business and a lot of different ways to run a retail business profitably in this country. Costco, I want to say, does not directly compete with the uh, the Walmart Walmart stores, they compete with Walmart's uh, Sam's Club stores, which are wholesale clubs like Costco and charge pretty much the same prices and pay much better wages. Trader Joe's in the grocery sector, Quick Trip out west uh, in the convenience store sector. And these are companies that pay higher wages, offer better benefits, keep their employees a lot longer so they have lower cost of turnover than Walmart has. You don't have to pay poverty wages to be successful. John Tierney, when, I, I live in Washington, D.C. now, and when um, the first Walmarts opened there in 2013 and they opened the doors to new job applicants, they were offering 600 slots and 23,000 people applied for those jobs and they were lined up down the sidewalks. Does that fact work towards your argument or against? And I want to ask the other side the same question. I mean, we always hear how how oppressed uh, uh, the workers at Walmart are. But you have scenes like that, 23,000 people. There's five or ten applicants for every position. Nobody is forcing people to work at Walmart. It's providing jobs that people want. And it's nice to think that we could pay them all $20 an hour. But, I mean, Costco, for instance, Costco doesn't operate in poor neighborhoods. It's at, it's, its customers are much more affluent than Walmart. Nelson, yes. same question about what does it mean that there's a, such a demand for this work when it becomes available? It means there's a tremendous hidden unemployment in this, in this society. It's true for every major employer, post office and other store. They all, whenever there's a, a, a big opening, you get thousands and thousands of employees. I want to make now a full-throated defense of trade unionism. What is the main difference between working at a union store and Walmart? I'll tell you what it is. It's not the beginning wage, which is the same. It is that you can have a career working at a unionized grocery store 10, 20, 30 years. You can get a pension. You can, you can actually buy a house. Whereas at Walmart, the policy of the company is, in fact, to churn the workforce. Richard, Richard Vetter. Well, I want to comment on this. Somehow Walmart is this huge corporation that has this enormous power over the American economy. What is the size of the American labor force? How many people are working in America? 150 million, roughly. Walmart is, at best, 1% of the labor force. Walmart is an important company in America. But uh, that doesn't mean that they are omnipotent or that they control everything. I just think uh, we've got everything way out of proportion here. Amy Traub. Well, it's interesting how first we're hearing how small Walmart is in the U.S. economy and not doing anything to wages here. And then we've just learned that it has um, 
abolished poverty around the whole rest of the world. So I don't know, is it a big company or small company? John Tierney, would you like to respond? Or? Um, the main reason that uh, um, the life expectancy has gone up around the world, that people's lives have gotten so much better. I mean, union leaders like to take credit for laws that were passed. But the basic thing is that people get rich. We had the Industrial Revolution, and it's capitalism that has done it. I mean, Amy, when you talked about that I'm giving Walmart too much credit for poverty in the third world, what isn't just Walmart, but it's capitalism that did it. And we're talking about Walmart in two ways here. We're talking about it as a company, but then you also kind of wave your hands and say, well, we can just change Walmart, and that'll change the rest of the whole system. And I'm saying that it is a system. It's a capitalist system. It's a market. Walmart can't single-handedly change that system. But it is that system that that makes people richer. I mean, it isn't laws help, but rich countries can afford to have great labor laws. You have to get rich first. Let's go to audience questions then. And I'll take one right down the front here, sir. With regard to uh, the cultural, um, societal, consumerism side of Walmart, Oftentimes, it is the cultural centerpiece of a municipality. What effect do you think that has on society as a whole? Because as you go into a store that has such influence that Walmart has, consumers oftentimes don't seek out other places. I live in a town of less than 25,000 people. It's quite the opposite of New York City. Uh, It is a a town with a poverty rate at 33.1%. And... When Walmart came to my community, uh, it was like a renaissance happened. And it led three or four years later to Lowe's. We never had a big store. So Walmart had sort of a cultural impact of that nature. It also meant that people started driving into our community from 10 and 15 and 20 miles away. I said, hey, this is pretty cool because this rural area is, is better off. People are less poor. Uh, they're happier. They have more choices. So long live Walmart. Walmart. Let's let the opponents want to have a counter version to that. Uh, yeah. Yes. Walmart was was did. I mean, this is a good example. But revolutionized uh, small town America. Uh, you know, and in many in many ways, frankly, the the there, there was a kind of you know uh, uh, small town merchants just you know jacked up prices, and they and they weren't. So that's one of the things that Sam Walton did. Uh, he realized there was a tremendous demand for you know cheap products in small town America. The question is then, who shares the benefits? Uh, in American uh, business capitalism, who, who ch- is is do the do the benefits of this go simply to the top? Uh, and today, the Walton family is is buying back its own shares. It owns more than fifty percent of the company today, or is it shared more more broadly? That's really the question. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your host. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, Long Live Walmart. Have you shopped at a Walmart store in the past year, he asked the audience in New York City. (laughs) The answer is 46% of you have, and 54% have not. Surprising us all, I think. Let's go to audience questions, and I'll take one right down the front here. Thank you. This is great. Uh, My name is Jerry, and my question is for the side opposing the resolution. Earlier, you mentioned that your objective would not be to physically dismantle Walmart. Could you clarify exactly how it would change? Do you expect it to voluntarily change itself? Would be there some form of regulatory effort? And what might the unintended consequences of such regulation be? Yeah. Nelson, oh, you want yeah. to take well, it? Well, I mean, it's already happening, of course. Uh, there, there has been this movement around the country uh, for $15 an hour and regulation, uh, uh, public policy, uh, health insurance. Uh, 
Walmart's had a big problem with health insurance because they didn't, they were, it was very expensive. Walmart actually supported the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, most people don't know that. Uh, and because it would, it would be very beneficial to the, to many of their employees who were making so little. So this was a public policy that came in and I think did in fact has uh, improved the life of, 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 of some of the, of some of these, these workers. So public policy moving in that direction can make the company uh, both similar to other retailers, and I think it's already moving in that direction, and then raise the general floor uh, for retail in general. It's nice to talk about living John wage Tierney. laws, and, and I can understand why Walmart wants a, a level playing field. You know, my reaction when I see these living wage laws of 15 or $20 an hour, I think they should be renamed the Robot Full Employment Act. I mean, I mean, that's what, I mean, if Walmart starts paying its cashiers $20 an hour, people are going to start shopping to places that don't have cashiers. I mean, it's already happening in fast food restaurants. So it's nice to raise people's wages, but you're going to put them out of work. Sir, right there. Hi, my name is Fred. Crux of my question is the, the feasibility of actually raising uh, wages or at least benefits for Walmart. I mean, I know that generally the argument is, is that if you raise their wages or benefits, they could potentially go, go out of business, especially, you know, since they have such a huge employee base. Okay, I, I think we get it. So yeah. I'll let uh, well, Richard take it. In fiscal 2017, which ended January 31st, Walmart made $13.643 billion after taxes. That's 2.8% of sales. Retail operates on a thin margin. That doesn't mean they couldn't make some modest increases and survive for a few years. But retail is dead. It's not dead. It's in trouble. (laughs) Yesterday's USA Today, Ralph Lauren to cut jobs, shutter stores. Same newspaper, same day. Not the best newspaper, but that's the one they gave me at the motel. Uh, (laughs) Payless seeks Chapter 11 protection. We'll close 400 stores. You know, this is a tough world we're in. Uh, I I, I really think Walmart is constrained. They spent $3.3 billion, by the way, this year to buy an Internet uh, uh, sales company so they can start to compete vigorously with Amazon. So you mean the other side might get their wish? And I still want to buy my underwear at Walmart, (laughs) but I may not be able to. You know, I got to say my wish, my wish has to do with the Walmart business model. And uh, Walmart's not the only one that has this business model. We see it at a company like Amazon, too, that's squeezing workers and sending profits to the top. And so I would not consider that a victory. I'm sorry if they are pushed out. We've actually debated Amazon, and I refer you to our podcast. Uh, (laughs) uh, The motion was uh, Amazon is the reader's friend, and uh, it's worth listening to. Okay, I'd like to take another question. Thank you. Hi, I'm Erin. So I feel like this conversation, for obvious reasons, has been pretty focused on people. Uh, But we're also in a political context where one of the most critical problems facing the world right now is climate change. And Walmart's doing a tremendous amount, even compared with the U.S. government right now, on that issue, including 100% renewable energy targets, science-based targets, that sort of thing. And where does that all fit in this? John Tierney, first to respond to that. I mean, I've written an article called Recycling is Garbage, Faulty and Recycling is One of the Most Wasteful Activities in America. But Walmart is actually a good example of an exception to that. Because when I talk to people about recycling, what they say is these curbside programs don't really make much sense because you spend so much energy collecting the stuff, sorting it. But Walmart gets, you know, gets a thousand boxes a day. It puts them all together. It's very efficient. And they can afford to do things on large scales like, you know, say that uh, less packaging from our suppliers because we're big enough. We can tell all, all our suppliers we want less packaging. Packaging. It can figure out more, more energy-efficient ways to do that. So in that sense, going to big scale helps you with you know, dealing with climate change because you can actually, I mean, you can hire somebody to figure out how do we design our lights to do it differently, how do we do this. And they, and they do it partly for PR reasons, but, but you know, even better is that they do it to save money. So that's good. Amy? Yeah, we, we've seen a lot of this, this Walmart PR. They won an award one year. I can't remember the name of the organization for the worst corporate greenwasher. In other words, um, selling products, for example, um, that touted their sustainability and environmental benefits. Uh, but it was marketing. It was, uh, they were brought up before the FTC for, for making some false claims on that. 
Um, and at the same time, Walmart also is putting millions of dollars into groups that are denying climate change, fighting against environmental regulation, fighting against clean air regulation. And at the same time, Walmart is, is selling cheap and disposable products that are designed to break down after a year, after a few months. So you go out and throw them in the landfill and buy another one. Uh, Mike's coming from your right-hand side. Hi, my name is Gerhard, and I have a question for Richard. I, I, I love the story about the, the poor village with the 33% unemployment and Walmart coming in and kind of a renaissance. But could one make the case that 10 years earlier, unemployment was half of that, and it's now 33% because all the jobs got, shopped, you know, got shifted to China because they moved the supply chain. So it seems to me they're burning down the village, and then they come around and say, oh, my God, you, know, you poor guys, I'm going to help you. Well, first of all, unemployment isn't 33%. I was talking about poverty rates. The, the preponderance of evidence shows that the net effect is still positive, and it's quite significantly positive. And at least in my community, it was. Uh, are there some sort of unintended consequences of anything happening, including Walmart opening? Yes, there are some losers. On anything you do economically, there are winners and losers. And markets have just very adroitly to the Walmart phenomena, and they've adjusted in a positive way. Amy, to respond. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in Richard's point that there are winners and losers because I, I think in the Walmart case, that is really telling. We can look at, at who the losers are and, uh, you know, it, communities see some benefits. They see a lot of, of downside as well. Certainly, um, anybody who has to go out there and work for a living, and especially if you happen to be working at Walmart, is a loser and the winners are In this situation, it's the Walton family that owns more than half of the company and has more wealth than the bottom 41% of Americans all combined together. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, long live Walmart. And now we move on to round three. And in round three, each debater will make a closing statement, a brief closing statement. Here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, once again, Richard Vedder, Professor Emeritus at Ohio University and Director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. I mentioned earlier I'm from a poor community, I think, has had a, where Walmart's had a transformative effect. But I think Walmart's effects are even broader uh, than that. And I think Walmart has been greatly maligned because its workers like Walmart. Not every worker, any company with a million and a half workers are going to have some unhappy people. But by and large, they have chosen not to unionize. In that, they're similar to nine out of ten Americans in the private economy who have also decided not to unionize. They haven't fitted into the old model of industrialization that many people still proclaim They just haven't fit into that. Uh, Walmart's a good company. The Walmart Family Foundation spends more than $1 million a day on charitable activities, a billion-dollar commitment on education uh, in the next few years. These are good people. When Katrina hit, FEMA kept talking about, uh, let's have strategy sessions, let's decide what we're going to do. Walmart was there with water and milk and bread to help poor people and stranded people uh, live. It is a good company. It is a company that's doing what Americans have been doing for years, uh, uh, proving our nation and making it exceptional. Long live Walmart. Thank you, Richard Vedder. And that is the motion, Long Live Walmart, and here to make her closing statement against the motion, Amy Traub, Associate Director of Policy and Research at Demos. Yet today we are living in a profoundly unbalanced economy where some working Americans are scrambling to keep the lights on and yet the wealth of the top 1% expands every year. I've argued that Walmart is at the heart of that unbalance. And I want to tell you about another Walmart worker tonight, Jennifer Green. She used to work full-time at the jewelry counter at a Walmart store in Virginia. Jennifer lost a pregnancy while she was working at Walmart. 
She was devastated about that, but her manager was pressed to minimize costs and paid time off and was unsympathetic. When Jennifer missed work to mourn the pregnancy, she was cut down to part-time hours. A year later, she did manage to conceive again, but at six months, Jennifer then had a severe flu, and it endangered her pregnancy. She ultimately missed a day and a half of work. She called in sick, as Walmart policy requires you to do, and she had a doctor's note. But Walmart gives frontline management really broad discretion to do whatever they can to cut payroll costs. And so Jennifer's baby was due in three months, and she was fired for missing work. Now, we all know that Walmart is far from the only company that underpays and disrespects its employees, but we also know they're the largest private employer in America, and the profits from squeezing people like Jennifer and her children flow directly up to the six Walton heirs who already have more wealth than the bottom 42% of Americans, and they give, we just heard they give some of their money to charitable causes. Their education charity is pushing a really controversial political agenda. We didn't get to talk about that. And so Walmart um, is a leader, and they're an exemplar of what makes our economy and our country so deeply unbalanced today. Thank you, Walmart Amy doesn't Traub. deserve a long life. Thank you, Amy Traub. And that is the motion, Long Live Walmart. And here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, contributing science columnist to The New York Times. Thank you. Um, and thanks very much for listening to us tonight. Um, when you cast your vote, I hope that you won't be biased by the affection that, uh, that we New Yorkers have towards small stores. I mean, you know, these little shops are wonderful. But the fact is, the average American family cannot afford to live and shop in our neighborhoods. And if you think that workers in small old-fashioned stores have it better than the terrible modern Walmart, I want to tell you about the, the family drugstore that I worked in in Pittsburgh during high school. I was a clerk. I was paid minimum wage with no benefits. The two owners of the store were two brothers who had to work, the pharmacist. They worked from Monday through Saturday every week, and one of them had to work on Sunday. It was a killer schedule. The only reason they could do it was that they had stay-at-home wives. Their kids you know, wanted no part of this business. They didn't take it over. The store went out of business. And so the people there now go to Walmart or they go to other chain drugstores. And, and these stores don't have the personal touch that we like to think about with these small shops. But the clerks in those drugstores today, they make more than the minimum wage. They get benefits. The pharmacists work 40-hour weeks. They can balance their family lives with, with work. That's why there are so many more female pharmacists today. And the customers, meanwhile, have bigger selection, they have lower prices, and the money they save there, they spend at businesses that didn't used to be in that that business district. There there are more restaurants now, there are more coffee shops, there are gyms, there are lots of things. And people can afford to go to those places in part because they have more disposable income thanks to Walmart. So basically everyone's better off. And my final question to you is, like, what's not to like here? Thank you, John Tierney. Once again, that is the resolution. Long live Walmart. And here making his closing statement against the motion, Nelson Lichtenstein, director of the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy at UC Santa Barbara. Thank you very much. I hope that you'll vote um, uh, with us uh, against the motion uh, because we want Walmart to change. In fact, I have a very good uh, su- a person to support me on that, uh, that uh, uh, idea. Sam Walton wrote in his autobiography just before he died... Uh, Constant change is a vital part of the Walmart culture. In fact, one of the greatest strengths of Walmart's ingrained culture is its ability to drop everything and turn on a dime. And in fact, Walmart has made some changes. Two years ago, they decided to raise wages very dramatically. They advertised it all over the place. First $1 a year, I think it was in 2015, and, two, and then another dollar a year in 2016. They did that. Uh, and they, it, was, it, they, it was very clear in their advertisements. This was not, they were not just responding to the labor market. They didn't make that argument. They said, we're doing it. We're doing it because we want better service, give, give, our, give our customers better service, and it's a good thing for our uh, employees. Now, our opponents, their real argument is what is, is good. What exists right now, they justify 
you know, as the best of all possible worlds, you know, <laughs> or almost, for what exactly is. But I think in that respect, Mr. Walton should be sitting on our side of the table here because he was in favor of change. And our argument is we think that the Walmart model, the way Walmart functions, can change. Uh, we, want, we want a different Walmart and a different retail sector in general. Um, capitalism changes, but it doesn't change automatically. People make it change. That's been true for 200 years in the United States, and I think it will be true in the future as well. Vote no. Thank you, Nelson Lichtenstein. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is long live Walmart. All right, thank you. While we're waiting for the results to come, I just want to say I really appreciate how all four of our debaters brought that to the stage and the respect with which you treated each other. It's commendable. Thank you very much. Um, I want to make this other point. Um, Those of you who are not regulars uh, have not heard me say this before. Those who have, please bear with me. Uh, We are a philanthropy, Intelligence Squared. Um, pays uh, the, the, the tickets that you buy don't come close to paying the cost of putting this production on. We rely on on donations and support and private support as well. Um, and uh, we have a number of uh, very important supporters, but we also have an army of smaller supporters, and we would love to have you join that, that group. Um, we've just developed a way for you to support us by using your phone. Um, I'm going to give you a number to text to, and if you text the word debate, then you'll be getting a link that you can then use to make a contribution, and we would greatly appreciate it. The number is 797979. I'll repeat it, 797979. And if you text that word debate, uh, you can help us uh, keep this going and help us growing, which is our goal. Um, So I have the final results now. You have voted twice on the motion, long live Walmart. Remember, it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. On the first vote, 30% of you agreed with the motion, long live Walmart. 25% were against and 45% were undecided. Let's look at the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 30%. It went up to 48%. That means they picked up 18 percentage points, which is now the number to beat. Let's look at the team arguing against the motion. Their first vote, 25%. Their second vote, 38%. They only went up 13 percentage points, which means the team arguing for the motion, our winners this evening. Our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We help you learn something. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Kristen Muller are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner-Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmail. From Intelligence Squared U.S., Thank you to all of you.